Acts 9, beginning in verse 32, and I'll read through verse 43. Please pay special attention to the reading of God's holy word. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we come this morning, we come humbly. And we come expectantly, asking, Lord, that you would speak to your people. God, help us to see the glories of the resurrected Christ. Help us to turn in faith to our Savior. Help us to believe your promises for your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We've come to a very interesting place here in the book of Acts. The beginning of chapter 9 was so dramatic with Saul's conversion. Chapter 10 is another dramatic set of events with a vision that Cornelius has and a vision that Peter has and then this conversion of Cornelius and his household, conversion of the Gentiles, these two dramatic events. We're also reintroduced here to Peter, who we have not heard anything about since chapter 5, and Peter's going to be a big focus from here until about the middle of chapter 11. So in light of that, what is going on here in these two brief accounts about Aeneas and Tabitha? 
Is Luke just trying to fill some space here in his account here in Acts? Is he trying to slow the pace down a little bit for the sake of the reader because the Saul and the Cornelius stories that bookended are so dramatic and maybe we just need to like slow down and catch our breath a little bit so we're not completely overwhelmed? We have to remember that the biblical authors are selective. Luke can't share every single ministry encounter that Peter had during this time period. So why does he choose these two accounts? Why focus here on Aeneas and Tabitha? And why ultimately did the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to record these two accounts? This isn't Luke just sitting down and deciding on his own. The Lord directed him clearly to include these two accounts. Luke doesn't himself give us an answer to this. He doesn't tell us why he chose these two accounts. And we don't want to unnecessarily speculate here. But I think we can say a few things. First is that Luke is not just writing some dry history. He's not just interested in conveying bare facts to us. Remember the intro to Acts. Luke is writing to Theophilus, similar to his gospel account, Luke's gospel account, where he wrote to Theophilus, saying that he's writing an orderly account of the details of Jesus' life and ministry, so that Theophilus may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, Acts, obviously, is a continuation of that same purpose, right? That Theophilus would have certainty that the things that Luke is conveying to him, the events that he's conveying, actually happened. These things are true and that he would be certain of them. The second thing is that Acts is persuasive narrative. It's not just like a history book, right? It's not just giving us information. It's meant to be persuasive. Luke wants his readers to be convinced about the truth of Jesus, to, be, to believe in him and to be changed by him. Third, I think we are to see ourselves, we've talked about this a bit in Acts, we are to see ourselves in these characters here in these accounts. They are ordinary sinners like us in need of the grace of our Savior. We are to see their responses to Jesus and know that we need to respond to him in a similar way. This is particularly what I want us to glean from our text this morning. Jesus is the sovereign giver of life who we must see, turn to, and believe. Jesus is the sovereign giver of life who we must see, turn to, and believe. A little bit more about our context here. Saul's preaching in the middle section of chapter 9, which we saw last week, and his two escapes from death, those things just occurred before this, very dramatic events going on there. And then we saw that summary statement at the end of that section in verse 31. You can look there with me. Again, remember there are, there are several of these summary statements throughout Acts where Luke kind of highlights what has been going on and what is continuing to go on. Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. We talked last week about the five things that we saw there. That there was peace in the church, that the church was being built up, that they walked in the fear of the Lord, they walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and they multiplied. 
This is important information to know as we move forward that these, these things are happening. The church is growing. God is at work among his people. But now here again we come to verse 36 and the focus returns to Peter. And Peter makes his way, says that he, um, sorry verse 32, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. It's probably referring to him being in Jerusalem. Uh, if we look at a map, Lydda is about 25 miles to the northwest of Jerusalem. So when it says he came down, we might think about like, you know, we go down to Illinois or we go down to the south. We think about on our map just like going south. But he actually probably came down from Jerusalem, which was at a higher elevation, and made this journey about 25 miles to Lydda to the saints, it tells us, who lived there. The saints at Lydda. And I love this descriptor for followers of Jesus. We first saw it back in verse 13. Look at verse 13. This is when the Lord tells Ananias to go to Paul, to Saul. It says, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Now the word here in the Greek, this word saints is an adjective. So it's kind of odd that it's, that it's used here. Um, the, the Greek word is hagios, which means holy. So literally what it's saying here is holy ones. Holy people. It's one of Paul's favorite ways of describing believers in his writing. Paul uses the word saints 40 times throughout his letters. And as Protestants, I think we often shy away from this word because of the negative connotations with the Catholic Church. Saints. This should not be so. We should not shy away from that title, that description. We should delight in this word because it is a descriptor of what God has done for us and in us. What he's done for us by his grace in the gospel. We are holy ones. Praise God. But that doesn't mean that we're perfect. Right? And here's where some of the people being sainted and all those things, that's where we, we need to reject that. But we say that we are saints who are still sinners. We're not free from sin in this life. We're not free from the effects of the fall. Case in point, Aeneas says that he has been bedridden for eight years. That can also translate it that he has been bedridden since he was eight years old. We don't know exactly, but either way, it's, it's been a long time. I think the thing we're meant to see here is that his faith in Jesus, he is a saint, but his faith in Jesus does not mean complete physical healing. And his paralysis is not a sign of weak faith. The health and wealth gospel spews lies about being healed if one has enough faith. That is not biblical Christianity. We're not told by Luke how or why Aeneas was paralyzed, and that's not the point here. Because even his healing is not about him. We don't need the details about how he got paralyzed or, or all these things about his life, because it's not about him. Let's see what happens. Notice the emphasis in 
Verse 34. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. The word that the Bible verse that every parent loves to tell to their children. <laughs> Rise and make your bed. This, it's actually good kind of funny, but it's, uh, it's, it's not that clear that that's what it's actually saying. It could, it could mean something like get up and, and make a meal for yourself. So um, parents, if you want to use that, just be careful because uh, it's, it's not different translations have to say some things differently. But the whole point is that Aeneas does not have the power to get up on his own, right? And it doesn't say Peter doesn't say, I'm coming as an apostle with the gift of healing and laying my hands on you. He just speaks. Jesus Christ heals you. And then he gets up. Saints of the Lord, Jesus Christ heals you so that, you, that he might be glorified and that many might turn to him. Look at verse 35. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now clearly Luke is using hyperbole here. He doesn't mean that every single individual turned to the Lord, but that there was a great response. Many turned to the Lord here. They saw what God had done and they turned to the Lord. That's the goal of the miracle. The goal isn't to show how much power Peter had. The goal is that people would turn to the Lord. But notice something else about Aeneas' healing. He goes from paralyzed and bedridden to risen. This word is key in these two passages. Rise, Peter tells him, and immediately he rose. This very brief account here of Aeneas is followed by another account of resurrection hope. We're introduced to a woman named Tabitha, who has the unfortunate second name Dorcas. I'm going to call her Tabitha so I can resist laughing or making other people laugh. But the explanation here, and I, unfortunately the, the ESV I don't think does a great job translating this. Um, Tabitha doesn't mean Dorcas, that's what it says. Dorcas is her Greek name, Tabitha is her Aramaic name. Both Tabitha and Dorcas mean gazelle, so it's this, basically the same, the same name, just the same meaning name in two different languages. So that's, it looks weird when it says Tabitha means Dorcas, because then you're like, well, what does Dorcas mean? So anyways, that's the explanation there. Um, Tabitha, we'll call her. She is a model disciple. She is a saint. She's full of good works. She's full of acts of charity. And these things are flowing out of her faith in Jesus as she served these widows in Joppa. We don't know for sure. Maybe she may have been a widow herself. But we know that she was serving these widows. Luke tells us in verse 37 then of her illness and her death and how they washed her body and they laid her in an upper room. Now in this hot climate, there was not much time before a body would start to decay. They would usually bury someone within one or two days. So there's a great urgency that we see here in verse 38 as these disciples in Joppa send two men to Lydda to get Peter. Now, 
This was, Lydda was about a three hour walk away from Joppa. So this would have been at least a six hour round trip for them to go and get Peter. They go, it says that Peter rose, they go to get him. He rose and went with them. He arrives at their house into this upper room. The widows are there mourning the loss of their dear friend, showing the garments that she has made. Now look with me at what Peter does in verses 40 and 41. It says that he put them all outside and he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Notice the resurrection language again. Arise, he said to her. And then he raised her up. Now we should pause here and ask ourselves if we have seen something like this before. Does this ring a bell, these two encounters? Are there patterns in the Bible, things that God does both to show who he is and to get our attention? And the answer is clearly yes. I wouldn't have asked it if it wasn't, right? Clearly there are some patterns here. So where have we seen this before? We saw the first example in our Old Testament reading with Elijah raising the widow of raising the son of the widow in Zarephath in 1 Kings 17 that was followed right after his provision of the flour and the oil these two miracles combined they established the validity of Elijah as a prophet of Yahweh then in 2 Kings chapter 4 just after Elisha succeeds Elijah, he raises the Shunammite woman's son from the dead. So the ministries of these two great Old Testament prophets of the Lord are validated in these resurrection accounts of these two young men. Well, where else have we seen this? The healing of Aeneas is echoed in Luke chapter 5 verses 17 through 26 where Jesus healed a paralyzed man. The resurrection of Tabitha echo, is echoed in Luke 7, 11 through 16, where Jesus raised a widow's son in the town of Nain. And then Luke 8, 40 through 56, where Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. Now we, we get a little linguistic hint and connection here. Do you remember what Jesus said? To Jairus's daughter when he told her to rise. Talitha kumi. Talitha kumi means young girl rise. What do we see Peter here say? Tabitha kumi. In the Greek it's Tabitha kumi. It's the same exact phrase with one different letter, Talitha and Tabitha. We're meant to see the connection between Jesus raising Jairus' daughter. So God established his prophets in the Old Testament through these resurrection accounts. His son comes in power, heals a paralyzed man, raises two young people from the dead. Now Peter is doing this 
Again, not to bring attention to Peter and to his apostolic authority, although it does give credibility to him as an apostle, but it's all meant to point us to Christ and to the power of God. Luke wrote all five of these accounts, the three in Luke and these two in Acts. Again, for Theophilus, remember that he might have certainty about the things that had been taught about Jesus and to persuade all future readers and hearers as well of these things that they might trust in Jesus. That's not insignificant for us today. Again, these aren't just some bare facts, just some accounts, historical accounts that we're meant to read and say, well, that's nice. We don't read our Bibles just to to check off lists, to say that we've done our deed for the day. We read in our private Bible reading, and we come here week in and week out to be called into worship by God's word. To be reminded of our need for confession by God's word. To be assured of God's gracious pardon by God's word. Not me standing up here telling you, well, it's okay, you'll be fine. No, we reassure you with God's word. We sing and we pray God's word. We hear God's word preached. And then finally we are blessed and sent out in the benediction from God's word. This is because God's word alone has the power to change us. Meaning God working in us and through us by his word and his spirit. It's not as if reading the words themselves has some magical power. But it's the proclamation of what God has said to be true. And it's what we must hear and receive and believe. God tells us about the power of his word in Isaiah 55, 11. He says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. There is purpose and power in God's word. He accomplishes his purposes. We see then the immediate results of the miracles of Jesus in Luke 5 and 7, and the miracles of Peter here in Acts 9. This is what Luke records in Luke 5 after the healing of the paralytic. This is Luke 5, 25 and 26. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Then in Luke 7, 16 and 17, after the raising of the widow's son, it says that fear seized them all and they glorified God, saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. We already saw the response after the healing of Aeneas. Again, look at verse 35 here. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now finally, what's the response after Tabitha's resurrection? Look at verse 42. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. 
response is demanded in light of the mighty works of God. Jesus' miracles elicited praise and glory to God. And here we witness in these two accounts seeing and turning and believing in the Lord. So what type of response do we have when we read these accounts? Or we hear them preached? Oh yeah, another healing, another resurrection story. Heard that before. The gospel is not just feel good, pick me up, lift up my spirits type of thing, right? It's not just a, a boost for our day. And we're not supposed to ask, where do we, I'm not here to ask you, where do you feel paralyzed with fear? Or where do you feel dead in your life? Right? Maybe you have a job that's frustrating or a relationship that's frustrating. Let Jesus come and raise you up. That's not how we apply these things, right? Jesus isn't some just some good luck charm or some genie in a bottle. He is the Lord, the giver of life. The right responses are what we see in these accounts. Glorifying God. Being filled with awe at what he has done. Seeing who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. Turning both to him in faith and turning away from our sin in repentance and believing in the Lord. So we might ask ourselves in light of this some challenging questions today. How are we failing to see? Are we demanding miraculous evidence? Physical healings or resurrections? You might recall Jesus' encounter with Thomas in John chapter 20. He had appeared to his disciples after the resurrection. Thomas was not present. The disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, he is risen. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Those are some strong words. Thomas is demanding Evidence, physical evidence that he see. I will never believe, he says, unless I see him for myself. So Jesus shows up and he says, Thomas, you idiot, what were you thinking? No. He says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed that's us, right? We haven't seen. We weren't able to put our fingers in that nail hole. We see by faith. And we believe. And Jesus said we are blessed if we believe because we've seen by faith. Saints, followers of Jesus, what does it look like for us today to see? in the face of a world full of Thomases that say, prove it. Unless I have proof, I will not believe in your God. You're going to be waiting a long time, friend, right? We walk by faith and not by sight. 
What does it look like for us to do that in a world full of Thomases? It's not easy. Maybe you're here today and you're not yet a Christian. Will you see today, for the first time, with the eyes of faith, will you see that it is Jesus Christ alone who gives life, who restores what is broken to you? Who doesn't just give you everything you need, doesn't just give you a happy life. He takes away your sin. He gives you a new heart so that you might live for him and that you might follow him. And will you turn to him? This is called repentance. Another thing that our world doesn't like to hear about, right? They don't like to hear that you're the problem, <laughs> right? Everyone likes to blame everyone else. But repentance means going before the Lord and saying, I'm the problem. That doesn't mean there's not problems out there. It doesn't mean there's not people who hurt us and sin against us. But we need to start by saying, I'm the chief of sinners, right? We talked about that a few weeks ago with Paul. Are we willing to confess before the Lord that we are the chief of sinners? We need to repent and get right with God. We need to turn to him. And again, I urge you, if you have not done that yet, what are you waiting for? Today is the day. Turn from your sin. Trust Jesus who died in your place, that you might have life, who rose again, that you might live and be right with God. Turn away from the empty promises that this world offers and can never deliver on. Saints, I'll ask us another question. How are we failing to turn? When we talk about repentance, it's not just a one-time thing. We don't just turn from our sin when we, when we get saved and when we trust Christ for the first time. It's an ongoing need in our lives. This is what Martin Luther was hammering home when he literally hammered his 95 theses to the wall of the church door in Wittenberg, that when our Lord Jesus Christ says repent, he means that all of life is repentance. Are we turning to the Lord throughout the day when we're tempted by pride, by self-sufficiency, by not loving our neighbor as ourselves, by not loving God as we ought to, when our eyes and our hearts wander after things in this world, when the overflow of our hearts comes out of our mouths and we are ashamed and embarrassed of the things that we have said, when we've been exposed. Do we seek to protect ourselves? Do we seek to cover our own tracks? Or do we turn away from our sin? Do we turn to the Lord seeking his forgiveness and the forgiveness of those whom we've sinned against? Are we motivated and empowered to live the Christian life by grace and out of an overflow of gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ? That's where the motivation needs to come from. Not from trying to do better ourselves. Not from trying to have all our ducks in a row. But the grace that God has extended to us. That we might extend that same grace to others. And finally, how are we failing to believe? To believe that God has spoken to us. 
through his word. That what he tells us about himself is true. And what he tells us about us is true. The goal in asking us this morning about our failures is not to pile on guilt. But to remind us that we have not yet arrived. That we are in desperate need of continual renewal. That our sight might be renewed. That our faith and our repentance might be continually renewed. So ask us again, are we seeing, are we turning, and are we believing in Christ? These are great questions to ask ourselves as we prepare this morning to come to this table. There's been a great theme of, in our songs, in our readings of resurrection. As we prepare to come to this table, this is a table for all those who have seen and have turned to and have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who can say what God says about himself and what he says about me in his word are true. What does God say to us about resurrection? I want to close with reading from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we come to this table, this is both simultaneously a table that conveys weakness, right? Our Lord, whose body was broken, whose blood was poured out, we come as those who are weak, needy sinners. But let us not only dwell on that aspect of it. This is a table of victory. This is a table that conveys the reality that Jesus is risen. He has conquered sin and death and Satan. And those who are in him walk in that same victory. We have that same resurrection hope. We have that same future hope. So come as a broken needy sinner. And come and receive as a victorious saint. Glory in the fact that Jesus has died and risen for you, that you might have new life, that you might see and turn to him and believe. If that's true of you, if you've done that, then this table is for you. And if you're not yet there, we would love to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus, to, to see him and to turn to him and to believe in him, to trust him. If you're not yet a Christian, we ask that you would remain in your seat for now. But those who are ready... Uh, as, as the servers come down, 